Brit Ben Abtarim, The Covenant Between the Parts, by Rav Yaakov Medan. The covenant between the parts begins with bad tidings. Abraham is presented with the prospect of a 400-year exile, including slavery and suffering. Chazal debate the reason for this affliction, and, as is their way, couch their explanation in terms of divine retribution, reward, and punishment. Rabbi Abahu said in the name of Rabbi Elazar, For what reason was Abraham punished? that his descendants would be enslaved in Egypt for 210 years, because he pressed Torah sages into service. As it is written, he led his trained servants born to his house. Shmuel said, because he exaggerated in his demands on God's divine attributes. As it is written, by what shall I know that I shall inherit it? Rabbi Yochanan said, because he kept people from joining the monotheistic faith. As it is written, the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the people and take the property for yourself. The three answers offered by the Gemara fall into two clear categories. One category includes those who follow the teachings of Rabbi Yochanan of Tveria, Rabbi Yochanan himself, Rabbi Elazar, his colleague and disciple, and Rabbi Abahu, his disciple. In the second group, the Rosh Yeshiva of and Bavel, Shmuel, sits alone. The Amoraim of Tveria connect the covenant between the parts with the preceding parasha, Abraham's battle against Kedar Omer and his company, and seek Abraham's sin within this context. Shmuel, in contrast, regards the episode of the covenant as an independent unit and seeks the sin within this unit itself, namely in Abraham's words to God. Shmuel's understanding of Abraham's sin sits well with the literal reading of the text. Abraham asks of God some guarantee for the fulfillment of his promise concerning the inheritance of the land. This demand would seem to express a deficiency in his supposedly perfect faith, justifying a harsh punishment. Indeed, in Shmuel's view, Abraham's punishment was measure for measure, because Abraham asked, How shall I know? He was informed of the future exile of his descendants with the words, Know with certainty. This interpretation raises two difficult questions. First, Abraham is the father of monotheistic faith and the greatest believer. How can we attribute to him the sin of deficient faith? And second, the verses preceding the notification of future affliction represent a clear contradiction to the idea that Abraham's faith was anything less than perfect. He brought him outside and said, Look now to the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall be your descendants. And he believed in God, and he considered it righteous on his part. And he said to him, I am God who brought you out of Urkastim to give you this land for a possession. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I shall inherit it? The Torah speaks explicitly in praise of Abraham's faith. Why then would he not believe that the land would be given to him? It is possible that Shmuel's understanding is connected to that of the author of Seder Olam, as Rashi quotes in his name, 430 years all-inclusive. From the time of Yitzchak's birth until this point, 400 years had passed. From the time that Abraham first had offspring, the promise, your descendants will be strangers, was fulfilled and thirty years passed from the time of God's decree at the covenant until the birth of Yitzchak. This is most surprising. How could the covenant have taken place when Abraham was seventy years old, when we are told explicitly at the beginning of our parasha, Abraham was seventy-five years old when he left Haran? Ramban addresses this question and mentions the opinion of the Seder Olam that Abraham actually ascended twice from Haran to Eretz Yisrael, once at the age of seventy and again at the age of seventy-five. This explanation is somewhat forced, in any event, his explanation implies that the narrative does not follow chronological order, and that the covenant took place before the beginning of the parasha. Perhaps we need not posit two journeys by Abraham to Eretz Yisrael.
Perhaps it is enough for us to move the covenant to the end of Parashat Nach, to the time when Abraham was living with his family in Haran. Haran is situated near the river Prat, which represents the border of the land promised to Abraham in the covenant. In the covenant between the parts, Abraham was promised not only the land of Canaan, as in the covenant of his circumcision, but all of this land, including the Keni, the Knizi, the Kadmoni, and the Rephaim. Let us clarify the picture that arises from this hypothesis. Abraham was living with his father's household and his family in Haran. There he receives a divine revelation at the age of 70, in which God shows him from a distance this land, which lies on the southwestern side of the river Prat, and promises him, I am God who brought you out of Urkastim to give you this land as a possession. In the wake of this message, God commands him five years later, when he is 75 years old, to leave his land, his birthplace, and his father's home, and go to that land which he will show him. At this stage, Abraham has not yet become the father and greatest of believers. He is the son of Terach, the idolater, and although he has discovered through contemplation of the sun and moon that it is God who created the world, and although he has already withstood the test of the furnace of Urkastim, he still has questions and uncertainties as to his path and God's promises. Indeed, he is punished for these uncertainties and the affliction promised in the covenant between the parts. Your descendants will be strangers. When Abraham reaches the land five years later by God's command, and God is revealed to him at his tent and guides him in all his endeavors, only then, in the land of God's inheritance, the land that God desires, does he ascend from one spiritual level to the next until he becomes the greatest of all believers in God. Only then are we told he believed in God and it was considered righteous on his part. According to our hypothesis, the parasha should be divided into two separate parts. And Abraham said, Lord God, what can you give me? For I am childless, and the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damasek. And Avram said, Behold, to me you have given no children, and here the one born in my house will be my heir. And behold, God's word came to him, saying, It is not he who will be your heir, but one who descend from your bowels will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look now at the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So will your descendants be. And he believed in God, and it was considered righteous on his part. After these things, God's word came to Avram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Avram, I am your shield, your reward is very great. He said to him, I am God who brought you out of Urkastim to give you this land for a possession. And he said, Lord God, by what shall I know that I shall inherit it? He said to him, Take me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So he took all of these for him and divided them in the middle, and placed each half facing the other. But he did not divide the birds. And the eagle descended upon the carcasses, but Avram drove them away. And the sun began to set, and a deep sleep fell upon Avram, and behold, a great dark fear fell upon him. The first part takes place in the land of Canaan, following the war against the kings, when Avraham is already at least seventy-five years old. The second part precedes the other chronologically, it takes place in Haran when Abraham is 70 years old. As mentioned above, the sages of Eretz Yisrael interpret the narrative in accordance with the order of the text. According to their understanding, the covenant between the parts takes place immediately after the war against the kings, and the narrative as a whole is introduced with the words at the beginning of chapter 15, after these things. Let us first discuss the approach of Rabbi Abahu in the name of Rabbi Elazar. In his view, Abraham was punished with servitude for his descendants, measure for measure, because he pressed Torah sages into service. When I was a child, these words of Rabbi Abahu used to be used as proof for the argument that Torah students should not be enlisted in the IDF. 
This claim proceeds from the exegetical assumption that Abraham is guilty of causing his trained servants, born to his house, to neglect Torah, since the time spent in pursuit of the forces of Kedar Laomer and his company, and in saving Lot, was time wasted in terms of Torah study. Abraham then should have conducted the pursuit alone, or sent Eliezer, as indeed the Midrash teaches, in its assertion that the 318 fighters that the text describes Abraham as enlisting in fact refer to Eliezer himself, the numerical value of his name being 318. In other words, it is clear that Torah study needed to be put aside for the purposes of the pursuit, and to save Lot, for after all, Abraham is not punished for wasting his own Torah study time. He is punished only for pressing into service a greater number of fighters than was necessary for the battle against the four kings and their armies. This interpretation is problematic in every respect. Can 318 fighters possibly be considered an excessively large army for the military challenge that Abraham faces? Is he supposed to rely on a miracle? Are all those born to his house really engaged day and night only in Torah, never leaving Torah for a moment in order to help take care of the needs of Abraham's household? Who then were his shepherds, who dug his wells, who was responsible for setting up his tent during his wanderings? Did Abraham never press those born into his house into service? Did they never do anything for him? Let us attempt to understand Rabbi Abahu's words differently. It is possible that Chazal had reservations as to the merit of the aim of the war that Abraham is about to embark upon, saving the kingdom of Sodom from the hands of Kedar Laomer. Perhaps they do not consider this sufficient justification for endangering the members of his household. If we question why Chazal are concerned for the safety of these Gentiles and servants who took care of Abraham's herds, the answer is given. Chazal point out that these servants were Torah sages and fulfilled the commandments, with Eliezer instructing them in the teachings of Abraham, his master. Abraham should not have endangered these people without good reason. Why, then, do Chazal not present a similar claim concerning Abraham himself for having endangered his own life in this battle? The answer is clear. A risk that a person takes upon himself is not the same as a risk that he places upon others, even if they are his servants. Abraham assumes the risk in order to save his relative Lot, thereby fulfilling the commandment, you shall not turn your back on your own flesh. He had a special obligation towards Lot, the son of his brother who was burned in God's name when he decided to accept the God of Abraham. But Lot was neither the relative nor even a friend of Abraham's shepherds and servants. On the contrary, he was their sworn adversary. Abraham therefore had no right to endanger them in order to save Lot. I wish to add two further comments concerning the view of Rabbi Abahu. We read in the Yerushalmi, Anyone who makes mention of redemption immediately prior to his prayer, Satan does not prosecute on that day. Rabbi Zeira said, I mentioned redemption adjacent to my prayer, and yet I was pressed into service to carry myrtles to the palace. First, the issue of pressing into service was familiar to Rabbi Abahu and his generation on the personal level. Roman soldiers would kidnap people indiscriminately in the streets and send them into the king's service and on all kinds of dangerous missions. Even Torah sages were not spared this danger. Rabbi Zaira recounts how he himself was pressed into service to bring myrtle branches to the king's palace. Second, as stated, the Midrash teaches that Eliezer alone pursued the kings in order to save Lot. Resh Lakish said in the name of Bar Kapara, The steward of my house, Eliezer, is a son of my household, for by means of him I pursued the kings up to Damasek. And Eliezer was his name, as it is written, he led his trained servants born to his house, 318. The numerical value of Eliezer is 318. Why does the author of this Midrash contradict the literal meaning of the text, as well as simple logic to introduce this strange legend? As I explained at length last week, the Midrash appears in many instances to draw a parallel between Abraham and Gidon, the judge. 
the well-known legend describing Abraham as smashing his father's idols, as a result of which he is sentenced to death by Nimrod, while his father Terach, with his wisdom, saves him from Nimrod's punishment, seems to be borrowed from the story of Gidon, who smashes the Asherah and the altar to Baal belonging to the household of Yoash, his father. The people of Ophrah want to kill him, and Yoash saves his son from them with his wisdom. The basis for the parallel is that Abraham takes just over 300 members of his household to wage war against the mighty armies of four kings, employing the tactic of dividing up at night, he and his servants, and striking them. He attacks suddenly in the middle of the night as the enemy camp is fast asleep, with different forces appearing from different directions, causing the armies to flee in confusion and panic, leaving all the spoils. Gidon employs exactly the same tactic with his own 300 men in the battle against the camp of Midian. He too pursues the Midianite army in order to save his brethren from them, as he admits to Zevach and Salmunah, kings of Midian at the end of the battle. This parallels Abraham's pursuit of the kings in order to save Lot, his nephew. God offers Gidon an even more miraculous victory, similar to that of Yonatan and his attendant in their battle against the camp of the Plishtim in the war of Michmas. It was on that night that God said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. And if you are afraid to go down, go then you and Pura, your attendant, to the camp. Reish Lakish is teaching us in the Midrash that Abraham acted in a similar way, he went down to the camp with Eliezer, his attendant, alone just as Yonatan went with his attendant alone, for there is nothing stopping God from saving by means of many or few. Gidon, in contrast, withdraws and takes all three hundred of his men with him to fight. Perhaps, in Rabbi Abahu's view, Avraham's sin lay in acting like Gidon, and not, as Rish Lakish explains, like Yonatan. Below, we shall discuss further the parallel between Gidon and Avraham. The final interpretation that we must address is that of Rabbi Yochanan, who also claims that Abraham's sin concerned the war against the kings. In his view, the problem was that Abraham prevented people from joining the monotheistic faith when the king of Sodom proposed, Give me the people and take the property for yourself. Why should we expect Abraham to convert all the men of Sodom and bring them within the monotheistic fold? What good would come of a forced conversion of all these people? And since when are we commanded to make converts? especially when it comes to people like the evil sinners of Sodom. From my teacher, Rabbi Yoel Binun, I learned that the approach of the teacher, Rabbi Yochanan, is the corollary of that of the disciple, Rabbi Abahu. The assumption that there was some justification for saving the people of Sodom from their captivity and servitude is closely connected with the assumption that it would be possible to convert them and bring them to monotheistic faith. For this purpose, it was proper even for Torah sages, such as the members of Abraham's household, to endanger themselves in order to save Lot and the men of Sodom together with him. But if Abraham decided to leave the men of Sodom and Lot alone, to allow them to return to their former evil doing, then there was no real reason for the war, and he was guilty of pressing Torah sages into service with no justification. Let us explain Rabbi Yochanan's teaching in greater detail. After Abraham separates from Lot, who heads for Sodom, God appears to him and promises, Lift up your eyes and see, from the place where you are, northwards and southwards and eastwards and westwards. For all the land that you see, to you I shall give it, and to your descendants forever. And I shall make your descendants like the dust of the earth, that if a person can count the dust of the earth, so shall he number your descendants. Arise and walk about in the land, its length and breadth, for I shall give it to you. This promise, as formulated here, applies not only to the land of Canaan, but to all of the great expanse from the river of Egypt up to the river of Prat. We are accustomed to understanding this as a vision for the distant future, but it is not so. God's intention in these words is for the present. Indeed, immediately after God's promise, the war of the kings erupts, with the kings from the other side of the river, Prat, invading the eastern side of the Jordan River, 
attacking all the kingdoms there, and perhaps even gaining indirect control of the western side of the Jordan. Along comes Avraham and, in an instant, defeats these conquerors. In banishing them and the remains of their forces to the other side of the river Prat, all the land up to the river Prat falls into his hands. As he returns, crowned with victory from his battle, it is no wonder that Chazal teach that all the kings vied to appoint Abraham king over them, for he had liberated them from the yoke of Kedar Laomer. Similarly, hundreds of years later, all the tribes of Israel came to Gidon following his victory over Midian and pleaded, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Thus God fulfills his promise to Abraham to give the entire land into his hands. But Abraham withdraws. He returns to his tent and chooses to relinquish his rulership over this vast area and over all that God has given into his hand. He obviously has his reasons. Reigning over the land also involves assuming responsibility for its inhabitants, to educate them in the way of God, which is the way of righteousness and justice. Abraham sees before him the men of Sodom in all their wickedness and concludes that he is not up to the task. He wants to establish God's nation from his own seed, to educate them from childhood, and thereby to prepare the people that will bear the banner of God's name in the world. In this act, Abraham admits failure and foregoes the challenge that God has placed before him. His pangs of conscience over this decision are easily detected in his prayer to save the people of Stom, some twenty-four years later. In our parasha too, God needs to comfort him. After these things, God's word came to Avram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Avram. I am your shield. Your reward is very great. Avraham had reason to fear that he had lost all his reward as well as God's promise, since he himself had decided to forego it. God once again promises him the land, and Avraham requests a covenant rather than just a promise, for the promise had been allowed to fall away. And he said, Lord God, by what shall I know that I will inherit it? According to the view of Rabbi Yochanan, Avraham should have accepted rulership over the land. He should have forced upon its inhabitants the way of God to perform righteousness and justice. His actions were deficient. Although it is difficult to regard his behavior as a sin, bringing in its wake divine retribution and punishment, clearly he did something wrong. Indeed, as we shall discuss below, the same conclusion arises from the unfolding of the covenant between the parts. For this covenant, Abraham is required to bring a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, and to wait for God's appearance. Clearly, fire is supposed to descend from heaven onto Abraham's offerings, thereby sealing the covenant between him and God. Let us depict the events here as described by my friend Rabbi Israel Sadiel of Kvaratyon. Instead of the Shekhinah, it was the eagle that descended upon the carcasses. The eagle, Ait here, is not a solitary bird. Ait is a participle, like Tsaid, hunting, or Daig, fishing. It appears then that a great flock of birds of prey, perhaps even of different types, descended upon the offerings that Abraham had prepared for the covenant. Abraham did not give up on fulfilling his part of the covenant. He lifts a thick stick and attacks this throng of menacing birds with all his strength. It is a battle that continues for many hours, a long, dangerous, and exhausting fight described by the Torah in just a few words. The eagles descended upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Through his desperate battle, Abraham must surely have his eyes raised heavenwards. He must be asking himself why God is holding back the descent of his fire upon the sacrifices that Abraham has painstakingly prepared in order to fulfill the covenant. But throughout the day, God is absent. The eagles descended upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. And when the sun began to set, a deep sleep fell upon Avraham, and a great dark terror fell upon him. And he said to Avraham, Know with certainty that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not their own, and they will enslave them, and afflict them for four hundred years. 
but I shall judge also the nation that they will serve, and afterwards they will emerge with great wealth. And you will come to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. And the fourth generation will return here, for the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete to this day. And it was when the sun went down and it was dark, behold a smoking furnace and a fiery torch that passed between the pieces. The sun is setting. It has reached the tops of the trees. Avraham has prevailed over the birds of prey, but has collapsed with exhaustion or has fainted. It is specifically then that God comes, finds Avraham sleeping, and schedules the next meeting between them for four hundred years' time. What is the symbolism of Avraham's Sisyphean battle against the eagles? This battle would seem to symbolize his spiritual and physical battle against the nations surrounding him and against their wickedness, a battle that reaches its climax in the War of the Kings. With his victory and the spiritual challenge that it brings to introduce the way of God, the way of righteousness and justice over the nations of the land, from the river of Egypt to the river Prat, it is specifically at this point, at the climax of the battle, that Abraham shows signs of fatigue and doubt, and he withdraws. As stated, in contrast to the two previous interpretations of his sin, as proposed by Rabbi Abahu and by Shmuel, Rabbi Yochanan proposes not a sin, but a failure, the lack of courage to elevate himself to the level of repairing the entire world. Is this missed opportunity worthy of punishment? Indeed, my view is that Rabbi Yochanan believes that the decree your descendants will be strangers is not a punishment, but rather a historical necessity in light of Abraham's withdrawal to his tent. Rabbi Abahu emphasizes the slavery in Egypt, measure for measure for Abraham having pressed his servants into service. It is possible that Shmuel, who accuses Abraham of challenging God's promise, is emphasizing the affliction that is promised, namely the literal suffering. In Rabbi Yochanan's view, the emphasis should be placed upon the issue of being strangers. Had Abraham taken on rulership of the land and responsibility for the nations dwelling in it, to correct them and return them to God, they certainly would have joined themselves to the nation of the God of Abraham and inherited the land forever. But since Abraham decided to withhold that potential sanctity from them and to bequeath the land only to his own descendants, a problem arose. Where would the nations living in the inheritance that they had received from their forefathers in Eretz Israel go? Could the native inhabitants of the land be banished for no justified reason, simply because God wanted to give the land to the descendants of Abraham? God informs Abraham that so long as the sin of the Amori is not complete, God will not banish them from the land. The children of the Amori were no saints in Abraham's generation, all were idolaters. But then at the covenant between the parts, the accounting of their sins began, and God's accounting for idolatry lasts up to four generations, as we read in the Ten Commandments, in the prohibition, You shall have no other gods before me. Until the sin of the Amori is complete, and until God visits their sin upon them after four generations, there is no land for the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, the nation of Israel that has descended from Abraham is destined to be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. Even if Abraham's children will dwell for part of this time in Eretz Israel, they will still be considered strangers, for the Amorite inhabitants of the land will rule over them. We may ask then, why slavery and affliction are decreed upon Abraham's descendants? Why does God not suffice with, your descendants will be strangers, without adding that they will enslave them and afflict them? But in truth, we must understand that the verse means only that the status of strangers will last 400 years, while within those 400 years there will be slavery and affliction for some undefined period. Indeed, this is what happened. The slavery and affliction did not extend throughout the 400 years of strangeness. Even the 210 years of exile in Egypt were not all years of slavery and affliction, for throughout Yosef's lifetime, and according to Chazal, throughout the lifetime of his brothers, the slavery was postponed. Slavery and affliction are a necessary historical result of being strangers for an extended period in the land of another nation. 
Naturally, there are hosting kings who are better and others who are worse, some more tolerant and others less so. Therefore, God set down a period for Abraham's descendants to be strangers and declared that consequently there sometimes would also be periods of slavery and affliction. The status of being strangers arose, as stated, from the fact that there was not yet an available land for Am Yisrael, so long as the sin of the Amori was not complete. Was Abraham justified in retiring to his tent and in relinquishing the opportunity to impose the way of God, the way of righteousness and justice over all the nations of the land? Was he justified in his insistence that God's nation, destined to inherit the land, would be established from his seed alone? These questions will occupy us in next week's Shur.